0: Good morning. I am Lori Vieira. I am um, privileged to serve on the board here in this congregation, and I'm also the head of the nursery. So, um, Today's scripture reading is from Matthew 1, 18 to 25. The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, "'Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid. Take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit.'" She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken to the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, but did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. This is God's word. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Lori. Good morning. Here we go again. Um, we're gonna pick up right where we left off last week, and as I, as I said, we launched into a series last week that is called Kingdom Come. We're going through the gospel according to Matthew. Uh, we're going to be Bible nerds. We're gonna put on our Bible student hats. We're gonna be good learners of the Word of God. We're gonna dig deep. We're gonna think deeply. We're gonna carry that with us throughout the week and chew on it a little bit to see if we can't get a little bit more out of it, because that's the way we're to approach the Word of God. Um, Who would have thought, though, last week that the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham, uh, would be so interesting, right? Just a genealogy script uh, passage in the Bible, and yet we came across liars and schemers, adulterers, uh, prostitutes, Gentiles, murderers, and, and so much more just in that genealogy. We didn't even have time to get into the wicked kings and the lines of people who, uh, who uh, had done pretty terrible things uh, as representatives of God's people. Um, but you might say it was a very human bunch of people, right? Very human, like turning on the evening news. But even still, God was faithfully working to bring about salvation, even through that bunch of humans. I'm sure a lot of us can relate to that list. You know any liars, schemers, adulterers, prostitutes, Gentiles, pagans, murderers, and so on? Maybe you know a little bit about yourself even in that list. Even still, God was faithfully working to bring about salvation. Salvation is not on the basis of our faithfulness, but his. I'll say that one more time. Salvation is not on the basis of our faithfulness, but his, and that's very important to know. Um, The genealogy also helped to establish for us that A, Jesus is the heir, the rightful heir to the Abrahamic covenant, that he would have a people, a land, and a blessing, and he would be a blessing to the whole world, the Abrahamic covenant, that was A, and B, that Jesus is the heir to the Davidic covenant, that he would, uh, he's the rightful heir to the throne of God's people, and that his throne and his rule would be everlasting, a promise that was made in the Old Testament. And then see that, that Jesus was the promised Messiah as a result of all of this, that he was the promised Messiah, the anointed one of God who would come and restore goodness and righteousness to all of creation, that's what Matthew is trying to establish. And he's gonna do that by highlighting a few things throughout our study as we go along. Um, he will make a special point of showing the, to the diligent student of the word, you and I, hopefully, that the birth, life, teachings, death, and resurrection of Jesus are fulfilling Old Testament prophecies. And Old Testament prophecies are not prophecies that are spoken by man from man, These are words of God. In other words, things that God said in advance, Jesus is fulfilling. And he's going to highlight that. He'll say things like, hey, this took place in order to fulfill dot, 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 an Old Testament reference. Or this had to happen in order to fulfill such and such. And what he's doing is he's building a bridge for us the reader, and specifically the Jewish believers and converts of his time, he's building this bridge to the Old Testament promises and how in Jesus they find their completion and fulfillment. That's what he's trying to show us. And I'm sure like you, uh, like you and I, we've read the Old Testament at times and went, what on earth am I reading here and why is this important? I'm gonna stick to the New Testament. Oh, thank you. Siri's helping out this morning. (laughs) I've had to do this before because... I move my wrist in funny ways, but <laughs> um, he's building that bridge for the reader that we would see the Old Testament promises as fulfilled in Christ. And, and truly, Matthew wants us to see, over the course of our study, he wants us to see Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the anointed one of God. who's to bring about all of this. Well, so what, what does the Old Testament actually tell us about Messiah. See, the Old Testament has all sorts of promises and and prophecies about who this Messiah figure, who this anointed one would be. Well, listen to this short list that I compiled for all his Bible nerds out there of what the Old Testament says. Some of these are hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus shows up on the scene. The Old Testament says that Messiah would be born of a woman, that Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, born of a virgin woman, From the line of Abraham, a descendant of Isaac, Jacob, and from the tribe of Judah. He would be heir to the throne of King David, and he would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. That Messiah would spend a season in Egypt. He would have a forerunner who goes before him, proclaiming his coming, He'd be rejected by his own people. He'd be betrayed. He'd be falsely accused. He'd be silent before his accusers. He'd be put to death with criminals. His side would be pierced, but his bones would not be broken. He'd be a sacrifice for sin. He'd be buried with the rich and resurrected from the dead. He'd be seated at the right hand of God and would come a second time afterward. All of that is the Old Testament profile and there's more of the Messiah. And some of you might be scratching your head because you already are a bit of a Bible student and you're going, wait a sec, it sounds like John just described Jesus in detail as if we were reading the, the, the gospel narratives. And that's right but we're seeing it in the connection of the Old Testament. We're drawing that bridge from the Old Testament into the New. That's all represented in the Old Testament. You want the scripture reference for those, see me afterward, I'll get them to you. It's amazing, it's amazing. Matthew is going to piece that together for us. It's one of his main objectives in writing his gospel. Now the specific term for the study of Jesus's life his nature and his purpose is this fancy theological term called Christology, 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 study of Christ. From today's passage, we're going to look at this very familiar Christmas passage, but hopefully we'll see it in a different light because it's a different time and season. It's a little hot outside, uh, and hopefully we have some fresh eyes and we're ready to look at it. You guys Ready? All right, let's keep going. All right, two points we're gonna look at, particularly regarding Jesus. A, his parents, and B, his nature. A, his parents, and B, his nature. All right, his parents. As we saw with the genealogy, Matthew is focused on establishing Jesus in the lineage of Joseph, because Joseph's lineage goes back to King David. And that's gonna put Jesus in line as the rightful heir to the throne, of Israel, the throne of God's people. And as a result, we don't have a whole lot of character development in Matthew around all of the different characters. If you want more details about the individuals, let's say Mary, for instance, on this Mother's Day, then you'll have to go over to Luke. Luke. Read some of Luke's narratives on what Mary went through and the the visitation she received. Here we kind of cut to the chase and we see more more or less in the first few chapters how God is convincing and bringing Joseph on board with this plan and directing him. Although we don't hear from Joseph himself, we hear only from the Lord through his messenger. Um, So here's where we start it says, Mary and Joseph are engaged, they're engaged to be married. But a first century engagement was quite different than our modern engagements. Uh, back then, to be engaged or betrothed to one another oftentimes was the result of, of parents interacting, working together, you know, arranging this. Um, and it looked much, much more like a marriage at this process, in this stage of it. Uh, it but it was, it was like a marriage, but without the sexual union. And that's why that part keeps coming up in the scripture. They had not known each other. They had not been together. They had not yet consummated the marriage through a sexual union, even though they were engaged. It was so much more than what we consider engagement that to, to exit an engagement or break it off required a divorce. It required a divorce to get out of it. An engagement would last about a year, a year, a year long of engagement, and during that time, the bride would continue to live with her parents most of the time. While the the husband or the groom would be making preparations for his new bride and his new family, maybe he'd be building his own home or acquiring land or building onto property that his family already had in preparations for their marriage. Now, this probably freaks some of you guys out. It's okay. We're learning, right? Mary was likely between 12 and 16 years old when we read this. 12 and 16. That was well within acceptable range for uh, betrothal, engagement, and then a year-long, and then the marriage. 12 to 16, and jo- uh, Joseph was possibly between 18 and 20. So a bit of an age gap there, according to our modern sensibilities. Which, and that would have been quite appropriate at that time as well for him at around 18 to 20 to begin to look to have his own family. Family and the name and the continuation of lineage was very, very important. Very, very important to them. And they're engaged, the text says, but before they come together, before they are married and have that sexual union, it says that Mary, it's discovered that Mary is pregnant. Uh oh. Ding, ding, ding. Red flags, right? Mary's pregnant. They haven't come together yet. And doesn't this remind you a little bit of the genealogy? Doesn't this remind you a little bit? It's supposed to stir up a little bit in us the scandal of the, the genealogy. Oh no. Is this another one of those? Is this another one of those moments of human failure? Or humanity poking through just when it seems like God is going to do something amazing. Oh, no. Is this not the final result? Is this not the end result? Is this not the perfection that God brings about in his will? Is this humans doing human things? And we're supposed to kind of get that. We're supposed to kind of look back to the genealogy and feel that tension. you know. And that's part of the reason why the genealogy highlighted some of those scandalous cases is to set up for this moment. She's pregnant, not from Joseph, and it's coming out, it's being being discovered. Imagine for a moment you are Joseph and you come to that knowledge. Now you might go, well, but over in Luke, an angel appears to Mary and tells her all of this, right? So she just went to Joseph and told him what the angel said. Sounds like a good story, right? (laughs) Good cover. But think in terms of this. There has not been, up till now, any miraculous conceptions in relation to the Holy Spirit and a human. None. So this is not in the frame of reference. This is not, oh, yeah, no, that makes to- total sense, Mary. Awesome. It's, it is what it is. And Joseph is coming into this knowledge and he's probably humiliated, shame, disgrace. It is a honor-shame culture that they're, they're living in. It's one where the family name, the tribe name, all of it matters very deeply to them. It's not simply a reflection of the individual. We are a very individualistic society. And if I'm the bad apple, that doesn't necessarily affect my family name or my family's name. But in their time, this would be very, very serious. He hasn't consummated the marriage through sexual union, but she's pregnant. And that could basically mean one thing, at least in reason, what is reasonable, and that Mary is an adulteress. And how would you respond? How would you respond to that crushing reality as you made that preparation to marry this, this one? But how does Joseph respond, the board says? It says, well, so in the Old Testament days, if they were going by the old law, Mary was to be stoned to death for her apparent transgressions. It was very simple. As you transgress, you were in a covenant relationship at a point called engagement, which is still binding, and you violated that covenant, and therefore, we punish you. And you can see how human reason would just jump right to that. It was the rightful uh, punishment for a transgression of that much because it affected the community. And, and yet, what, what does Joseph, how, how does he respond? Now, that was Old Testament. You got the first century. The Romans had come in, and the Romans said, you can't kill people. <laughs> if you just start killing people, it could cause riots and mobs, and then we can't control that. You have to go through us if you want any sort of public educate, uh, execution. And so the teachings of the first century, which is when Mary and Joseph are, uh, had shifted to require a divorce. You've gotta cut it off. You can't continue on. This is disgraceful, this is shameful. You must cut off this betrothal, this engagement. It would be unfathomable to stay together under those conditions. Yet Joseph, it says, a righteous man is concerned for her disgrace, He's actually concerned and moved for her, and so he schemes. He devises a plan that says he will quietly divorce her. He will still go through with what is right, what is commanded, what is necessary, which is he must divorce her. He can't just decide to continue on and overlook it. The sin must be must be atoned for, or punished. I mean. And therefore, he he needs to divorce her, but he's going to do it in a way that preserves her dignity. He's not gonna go to the town gate and make a declaration and have witnesses around where he makes accusations. He's gonna do it quietly so as to preserve her because he's a righteous man who's concerned. And so he's considering these things. And the passage tells us that while he's considering this, probably the only thing possible that could change his mind happens, right? (laughs) Right? an angel shows up in a dream. And the angel says, Joseph, don't be afraid. Take Mary as your wife. Because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Not only are you to to continue in this engagement in marriage, but you are to be active as the father, the one giving the name and providing the lineage to this this child conceived by the Holy Spirit. A miracle, a game changer for someone like Joseph who knew what was right, what had to be done. An angel comes and interrupts that and says, no, marry her and name the the child Jesus. Jesus from Joshua, the Lord saves. Why? That's what his name means because he will save his people from their sins. That's a game changer. So how does his birth, Jesus' birth in his nature and the nature of his birth play into his purpose as is spelled out in this angelic message? This angelic message is, You are to marry her, she will give birth, he will be a son and you're to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. How, How does his birth and his nature play into that purpose? Why was it important that it happened this way? And that leads us from his parents to point number two, which is his nature. So let's talk about Jesus. What does it mean that Jesus was A, conceived by the Holy Spirit, and B, born of a human woman. What does that mean? Why is that in the story? These aren't details you can just gloss over and move on from, they're right there and they mean something. Remember we talked about in that first week. uh, Oftentimes the biblical authors will put details in there. When you see a detail that stands out, it's there for a purpose. They have a, a great economy of words. And when they leave something out, it might also be there for a purpose, to prompt something in your mind to get you thinking. And so we find that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, but born of a human woman. He didn't just appear, like Terminator 2, right? When they send the T-whatever back, and he, pff, flash of light, and he's out there, right? There he is, Jesus, and we all know it. <laughs> well, it could have happened that way, right? I mean, you guys, as a kid, you never thought of that? Like... <laughs> Why didn't he just show up? Why didn't he show up in the most important place? Why didn't he show up in our time when there's TV cameras and all sorts of ways to get your message out? Why did it happen here and why did it happen in this way? And so the author wants us to look at two things, the conception by the Holy Spirit and the birth by a human woman. And so that's what we're going to do for the remainder of the time. There have been and are today Many, many, many claimants uh, to the title of the real Jesus. Um, one scholar said, "There are a lot of G-Z-I, JESI. There are a lot of JESI because there, there's really only one true Jesus, uh, and therefore you can't pluralize him. But many claim to have been made. Many claims have been made about who the person of Jesus is, and therefore we have lots of JESI to sort through." We run into this all the time as we are navigating culture and culture wars and particularly even culture wars within Christianity, which Jesus are you talking about? Have you ever wondered um, Jehovah Witness are, are they brothers and sisters are they they would say they're Christian are they? Have you ever wondered the Church of Jesus Christ Mormon the teaching of the Mormon church are are, are we the same? What are, do we only differ on uh, uh, insignificant matters or do we differ on major matters? The, the issue of the nature of who Jesus is and who G, the real Jesus is and who all these Jesi are is really important to us and to our faith. Jesus is not an incantation. You can't just say the name of Jesus and mean any Jesus. I just, you know, I speak, the, there's a song that says, I speak the name of Jesus. I don't know the verses, so maybe it's theologically rich, but you can't just speak the name of Jesus, and because you said the name Jesus, which obviously is not even his original name in his original language, but transliterated through many You can't just claim that and say, oh, I say Jesus and therefore. Jesus is a person, a real person. Jesus is a person and faith in the real Jesus saves. Faith in the real Jesus saves. It is possible to have a false understanding of Jesus, one that no longer connects to the reality of who Jesus is. If that's the Jesus you claim, There's no salvation in him. There's only salvation in the real Jesus. And that's why things like doctrine and what we believe about certain things are so important. I don't have time, I would love, like I'm super interested in things uh, like church history, I would love to go off on a tirade and you know, talk about Nestorianism nest- and Arianism and all of these and how they connect to modern day uh, religious cults and religious branches from Christianity. We don't have time to that. I'm, I'm looking at the clock, everyone. I know where we're at. <laughs> but, uh, but I would love to talk about that because you, you'll begin to see who Jesus is, the Jesus you construct, the Jesus how you think about Jesus matters. Let's just say it that way. How and what you think about Jesus matters. And the Bible teaches that Jesus, the person Jesus has two natures in one person. Two natures in one person. One thing, one uh, little quote that I came across was, what he was, so that's past tense, what he was before, he remained what he was not he became what he was remained what he was not he became in other words who he was from eternity past as god remained he didn't let that he didn't set that aside he didn't lay that down but what he was not he became he took on a human nature this is gonna be important. We'll talk about this. The, the, the two sides of this idea of nature, his nature, is he is fully God and he is fully man. Fully God, fully man in one person. Brain's exploding right now, right? <laughs> Jesus is one person who is fully God and fully man. Uh, At the moment of conception, by the Holy Spirit, we're told in Matthew chapter one, the divine nature and the human nature are united together, a hypostatic union, connecting them together. The divine nature of God in the second person of the Trinity, what we call the Son, That's why we use the terms like the son of God. The divine nature is not absorbed into humanity so that it disappears. Nor is the human nature of that which is created in the womb of Mary changed by the divine nature in such a way that it no longer is fully human. Those things which are true of each nature remain true after the union in Mary. Fully God, fully man. The divine nature of Jesus is uncreated, it is eternal, and it is unchanging. The divine nature cannot suffer or die. It cannot. The divine nature cannot, there is no divine death available to die. God cannot die. He can't. He is ultimate. The human nature is created in time and it does change and it can and does suffer and die. We know that. We're pretty acquainted with the human nature, eh? At the incarnation, at this point of conception by the Holy Spirit and Jesus in the womb of a woman named Mary, the incarnation is not like one ingredient that's mixed in with another one and you mix it together until the two ingredients disappear into a new third ingredient, a third nature, right? He becomes God-man. Da-da-da! And it's one new nature that he operates out of. We don't believe that. Nor is it like a human who puts on clothes and they simply cover or veil another nature. One of the things you'll, you'll know in, in, in theology as we, we study and we come across these things is oftentimes when there are complex things that are very difficult to explain what they are, they're oftentimes explained in what they are not. So you'll often hear a lot of, of the language of it's not like and it's not that. Because what we're doing is we're creating a picture and we're honing it in. We're creating guardrails to bring in that picture a little tighter so that we don't venture too far off, but it's... So complex and so mysterious to just define in a single uh, sentence. That's why you're you're hearing even now. It's not like each one of those those negatives um, that it was two ingredients put together, mixed together to create a third nature, or that it was a human like putting on clothes. Like God just put on clothes to cover His divinity right, to veil his divinity, but he was really fully just divine. Both of those are historic heresies in the church. To believe those is not to believe the real Jesus. That's why it's important. So what is it like? Well, as I said, no analogy fully captures the idea in its totality. And some of the error in our thinking comes from putting too fine of a point on it, when we push metaphor and, and uh, analogy too far, it, it can get a little a little uh, uh, heretical error. There's mystery in it, to be sure. But one illustration that I did come across is this. Suppose you have a carpenter, and the carpenter wants to build a cabinet, and to do so is going to require cutting some wood. There's also a saw in his shop, right? the old school saw that you have to use, move your hand to use, <laughs> There's a saw in his shop, and the carpenter does not have, in his nature, the properties that are useful for cutting the piece of wood. The saw, however, does have the properties that are useful. It has properties that are very useful for cutting. But the saw is unable to cut the wood without the activity of the carpenter, right? The saw doesn't just get up and start cutting wood. But by being taken up by the carpenter's hand and through the carpenter's effort of movement, the saw now shares in whatever the carpenter does with it. In the incarnation, the eternal word of God, the son, the second person in the Trinity, takes up a human nature, which is now an inseparable instrument that is conjoined to his person, to who he is. It's like if you transplanted an arm, right? You had an arm, inanimate. It it does things if it's animated, but on its own, it's just sitting there. You transplant that arm and you connect it to the nerves and the muscles. And then as a person, you begin to move that arm. You begin to animate that arm. It becomes a part of who you are, inseparable instrument in your hands, it's similar to that. So why does it matter, as we kind of aim toward the end here, why does it matter that Jesus was fully God and fully human? And like I say, we could, ex- we could explore this probably for, for many, many days. And, and you ought to. Uh, Thomas Aquinas supposedly sat on these questions for a couple years and simply meditated on them to try to see if he could get a little bit of more insight into the two natures of Jesus. Truly a mystery and yet a wonderful mystery. But why does it matter? Well, if, if he had only been fully human, his death would do nothing to help us. The death of a mere human is soon forgotten. And we would still need someone to reconcile us with God. Human alone could not do it. Had Jesus only been entirely God, he could not have suffered and died in our place. God cannot die. It is the very fact that Jesus was fully human and fully God that makes Jesus our Savior. In the Heidelberg Catechism, this is a way that Uh, some believers use to teach others what to believe or how to believe in a very concise way. It's a tool that is used where a question is asked and an answer is memorized and repeated back as a way to train our minds to think in terms of what is true and right. All from the Bible distilled down into a question and answer. In the Heidelberg Catechism, question number 16, it reads like this. It says, why must he be a true and righteous man, he being Jesus? Why must he be a true and righteous man? And the answer that is given is, he must be a true man because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned should pay for sin. He must be a righteous man because One who himself is a sinner cannot pay for others. He cannot pay for other sins if he is a sinner. And he cannot pay for the failings and the sinful nature of humanity if he is not human. Therefore, he must be fully man. Question 17 then answers the other side. Why must he also be true God? And the answer is, so that by the power of his divinity, he might bear the weight of God, God's anger in his humanity and earn for us and restore to us righteousness in life. Only the power of his divine nature could bear the weight of our guilt and sin, all the world's guilt and sin. Only by the power of the divine nature could Jesus bear the weight of God's justified wrath towards sin. God is justified in his wrath toward rebellion and sin. He created a perfect creation and the creation through humans rebelled and suffered the consequences. There is justified wrath towards that and the one who is going to pay for that must bear the totality of that. Remember, God is an infinite being, therefore the wrath is infinite. No mere human could do it. A shorthand I came across, I believe we have a slide for it, is this. Jesus had to be truly human in order to suffer and sympathize. Jesus had to be truly divine in order to satisfy and secure. To satisfy the just wrath of God against sin and to secure for us salvation, he had to be divine. But the divine cannot suffer and die. In order to suffer and die, he had to be truly human. And therefore, he suffered for us and can sympathize with us. We read that earlier in Hebrews Jesus, the one person with two natures, can rightfully be called Emmanuel, or God with us. For in Christ Jesus, he is both God and us, human. He knows your suffering. He knows your pain. He is acquainted with your grief. Are you... Today, experiencing a very human experience? Are you feeling the weight of your humanity bear on your shoulders? Jesus knows. But he's not just another mere human who only can sympathize. I'm sorry. Hope tomorrow's better. He is also God with us able to carry our burdens, our pain, and our sin. The incarnation is an extraordinary comfort for the suffering human soul. Every other religion, every other religion says that you must ascend the mountain to reach God. Every other religion says you must achieve a level of moral perfection For you to be worthy to ascend the mountain of God, only Christianity offers a God who has stepped down to become human, who's lived in our world, experienced our suffering and our grief and our pain, and in doing so, he has brought to us the kingdom of God, which we all are invited to live in today.